Amen. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, band. Appreciate you guys. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. And if you're new or visiting with us, or maybe you've been out the last couple of weeks, I want to catch you up on where we are. Uh, this summer, we're going through a series together. And this series uh, is called uh, Proverbs, The Way of Wisdom. So in this series, what we've acknowledged is that we all need wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to take all of the information and the knowledge that we have available to us. And there's so much that comes at us all the time. And then be able to take that and to discern what is the right decision, the wise decision, the choice that leads us through the complicated decisions that we face in life all the time. And we've acknowledged that regardless of where we are in life, no matter how old you are, or young you are, rich or poor, no, no matter where you're coming from, you need wisdom. I need wisdom. We all need wisdom to live in the complicated times that we live in today. And this summer, we've committed ourselves to this journey of pursuing wisdom. And we're going to take a, a couple of different tacks at doing that. The, the first is that we're asking everybody to consider going through this little book that we're looking at, an Old Testament book called the Book of Proverbs, and reading it on your own, slowly, uh, reflectively, uh, going through and maybe journaling some, some ideas. We, we even gave away, if, if you missed the last couple of weeks, we gave away these beautiful little journals. And on one side, there's, there's the scripture, and then on the other side there's a space to write your notes and your thoughts uh, and and I've just been going through this and really benefiting myself and if you didn't get one of these there's three left so there may be a fight at the table outside but even if you didn't we'll give you a full Bible we have lots of regular Bibles we'll be glad to give you but we hope you'll take some time to personally go through and engage with this book because we feel like there's so much uh, rich wisdom there and then on Sundays we're going through the book and we're taking one topic or one verse and we're going to dive a little bit deeper and so that's what we're going to do today. But before I get to the verse that we're going to talk about, I want to begin by asking you a question. And the question is this, when was the last time that you changed your mind about something important? When was the last time you changed your mind about something important? When was the last time you read something or saw something or had a conversation with somebody and it, and it really challenged something about your deepest convictions? I'm guessing probably not very often. I mean, we, we change our mind all the time about small things, right? Like we decide, uh, I'd rather have Mexican food than I would have to have Chinese food. Like we, we make those switches pretty easily. Or we start driving somewhere and we realize, oh, I should have checked ways first. This way is way too crowded and, and there's too much traffic. I need to go a different direction. We change our minds about those things all the time. But when was the last time you changed your mind about some really core and fundamental things about your life, about your relationships, about how you interact or, or how you uh, spend time or how you prioritize friends or family members. Um, how, how often do you really rethink your work, the work that you do, your career? What is it that you're good at? And what is it that you do that brings you life and, 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 and adds something meaningful into the world? How often do you think about the career that you're in and your trajectory and where you're going? How about this? How often do you really think about your deeply held convictions and beliefs? Maybe your political convictions. Um, the way you think about the way that uh, our government, our country should be operated. How, how often do you change your mind or, or rethink those convictions? Uh, what about the way you think about your financial decisions, the way you think about how you manage your money? What about your faith? 
When was the last time you reconsidered some aspect about God and changed your mind? Or, or maybe about a way you've thought about verses from scripture that you've read or, or what faith means. How often do we really reconsider these things? Well, I read a book really recently that, that sort of got me thinking about this and challenged me. It wasn't a religious book. It was actually a business book called Think Again by a guy named Adam Grant. And um, Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist. And he wrote this book because his concern was that we don't do that nearly enough. We don't rethink our core convictions. We don't rethink things. And we simply go into the world with these ways of thinking about the world that are just flat out wrong. And as an organizational psychologist, he wrote this book with lots of studies behind him to, to talk about how we are misguided and, and we, we have these convictions that sometimes are not based totally on reality. And so we're plagued by these false assumptions. He makes this argument in the book that he, he, we're plagued by these false assumptions and biases that end up leading us to be in, in lots of situations in our family life, in our relationships, in our work, in our careers, in lots of different places. We just end up being wrong, but often we don't even know that we're wrong. So he shared a number of different kinds of, of traps that we fall into. Here's, here's a few of them. The first instinct fallacy. So this one is the tendency to believe your first thought, idea, or answer is closer to the truth than revised thoughts, ideas, and answers. If you're in school and someone tells you just go with the first answer, he would say that's quantifiably wrong. You should go back and read over your answers. You should go back and rethink what you, because re, simply going back and rethinking will help you to discover errors in your logic. He said that's been proven. The desirability bias. Um, this is our tendency to see what we want to see, that our brain tends to look for things in the world that affirm the way we think about different things, which is connected to the confirmation bias. This is another one that's been proven. That this is our tendency to seek out information that confirms our pre-existing beliefs. That is, when we're reading things, we tend to ignore that which contradicts what we believe and we're gravitating towards people who say the same things that we believe. Again, this is traps we all fall into. And then the last one is this one, the binary bias. Is it A or B? Is it black or white? Is it red or blue? Which is it? Well, that's a false choice. There's actually thousands of different colors. There's lots of different, and we tend to fall into this binary bias. We get into, our minds are made to gravitate towards dualistic thinking. Is it one or the other? And he said we fall into this trap all the time. And all of these fallacies are probably things that you or I have fallen into all the time. I know that I have. And in his grant, and in, his, in, his, in Grant's book, he talks about um, how we all fall into these things. And then he gets to uh, one section where he talks about maybe the most troubling is we fall into these traps where we're seeing things incorrectly, but we're so convinced that we're right. He references a study uh, by Dunning and Kruger um, that showed that the less competence, the less we actually know about a particular area, the more we tend to be overconfident about it, which is counterintuitive, right? You would think if you know less about something, you would be less confident or more humble about that area. But he said study after study shows that's not true, that actually the less we know about something, the more confident we are about it. So to show you how this works, I'm gonna give you a little exercise that he gave in the book. So I wanna read some subjects to you and I want you to think in your mind, compared to most people, how much do you know about these subjects? More, less, or the same? 
So four scenarios, four subjects. One, how much do you know about why English became the official language of the United States? Do you know more, less, or about the same as other people? Why women were burned at the stake for being witches in the Salem witch trials? How much do you know? More or less the same than other people. How much do you know about what job Walt Disney had before he drew Mickey Mouse? And then lastly, on which, how much do you know about on which space flight humans first laid eyes on the Great Wall of China? So think about these four things. How much do you know about them? How much would you wager if I was going to ask you to put a bet? How much money would you bet that you know more or less or the same about than other people? Well, if you thought you knew anything about these things, you'd need to think again. America has no official language. Women were hanged, not burned, in Salem. Walt Disney actually didn't draw Mickey Mouse. It was an illustrator named Oob Iwerks who did that. And you actually can't see the Great Wall of China from space. So this is just a really simple, silly example that we all jumped right into thinking about how much we knew about these things without considering whether or not they were true or not at all. And he said, this is, t- this is the, our tendency is that we can often fall into just assuming that things are true, we take them as true, and then we can become overconfident. Our ignorance can actually lead us to arrogance about that, which when you begin to think about the repercussions of that interpersonally, when we start to think about the complexities of life and our deepest held beliefs and what we believe about the world, and when we interact with other people who have different views or different ways of thinking about the world, it's really easy to see how this can become a mess really quickly, right? I mean, over the last year, we've all been forced to rethink and reconsider so much about everyday life. We've been forced to reconsider the safety of going to public places like restaurants or the grocery store. We've been forced to reconsider what's possible as it relates to doing work or doing school remotely. We've all had to reconsider that. But while these shared experiences are things that we've all had to go through, they haven't really brought us closer together or created more unity in our culture or society, have they? No, in fact, we seem to be more polarized and more separated than we ever have been before. People seem to be more entrenched and more convinced that they're right and the others are wrong. I mean, simple conversations over whether or not you should kneel, whether players should kneel for the national anthem or not, have ended friendships. I know families, real stories about families that have been torn apart by who's voting for whom. And I know that there's a lot of conversations happening now that I've been a part of that are super awkward about whether you should for sure 100% get the vaccine or whether it would be safer to wait, especially if your kids are involved. There's so much tension. I don't know about you, but I've been having these conversations even over the last month. And I read another book last year, one called... uh, Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, and he says this actually gets worse. He tells these stories over and over again that we encounter people who are different than us. We make assumptions about them based on the way we see the world, based on the way that we just process information, and we can miss each other so easily. 
So between these biases that we fall into, the traps that we fall into, our overconfidence about our ignorance, and our misunderstandings about people that are different than us, we're just set up, naturally set up, to fail. And so when we think about these things, the question arises, you know, how do we navigate around this? How do we avoid our, our tendency to, to make things worse, to make things more complicated? Grant says there's four different types of mentalities that we can shift into, four personas that we can shift into. And I want to talk about the first three because the first three are the ones that, that are the ones that lead us in the wrong direction. They lead us away from making wise choices. He says that when we encounter people who are different than us or have different convictions than us, people who we, with whom we disagree, he said we can take on three different personas. The first is the preacher. We can all become preachers. We can become someone who is, is advocating for our deepest held beliefs. When our deep, most deeply held beliefs are challenged, we can often shift into uh, giving sermons uh, to defend or promote our ideas. This doesn't have anything to do with religion. It just, it's a mentality of persuasion that when your deepest beliefs are challenged, we can shift into this mindset. Or, he said, sometimes it's the prosecutor. When you feel attacked, you jump to becoming the prosecutor, pointing out the logical flaws and the contradictions in another person's argument, picking them apart the way a defense attorney would do. You can't handle the truth, we might say, to someone in this mode. Or we become a politician. In situations where we wanna win people over, we may just go along to get along. We'll do anything to be able to, to, just, to just get along with the people that we're disagreeing with. But the problem is that none of these three mindsets that we can all shift into lead us toward wisdom. We all probably play these roles at different times in situations where we encounter people with whom we disagree. But the problem is none of these lead us to wisdom. What I want to talk about today is that there is an alternative. There's an alternative that Grant presents in his book, and it's actually reflected in the book of Proverbs. It, it comes from a verse that is in this ancient book that's over 3,000 years old, nearly 3,000 years old, and we're going to take a look at it today. Before we look at the verse, I want to just remind you, especially if you're new or just joining in this series, so we're looking at this book, which is actually more of a collection of writings. So the book of Proverbs was written, the earliest sections were probably gathered somewhere around 700 BC, so nearly 3,000 years ago. And when we read through it, we can see that there are multiple sections written by different authors. The verse we're going to take a look at today comes from the end of the first section. The first nine chapters are kind of the first collection. And they're attributed to the editor, whoever put this collection together, attributes the writings to the great king of Israel named Solomon. So when we're reading this, we're to, to understand that this is some of the collected wisdom that comes from Solomon. Now, in the preceding verses, before the ones we've been looking at, there's this very allegorical, metaphorical uh, picture that the author is painting about wisdom. That wisdom is like a, a woman who goes out into the streets and calls to people. That wisdom is like a woman who's offering guidance and insight and understanding to all who will come to her and listen. And, and, and he talks about, about, about the value of listening to lady wisdom, the, the value of heeding her call. And then the author shifts 
and, and goes into this very direct, he, he shifts away from the metaphorical uh, speaking and he goes into speaking directly and he begins with this negative statement. We're in Proverbs chapter nine, verse seven, and it says this, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs Abuse. So let me explain what's going on here. So broadly speaking, throughout the book of Proverbs, there's a contrast that's going on between the wise, those who seek wisdom, and those who don't. And those who, who are seeking wisdom are called the wise, and those who are not are foolish or fools. But there's a lot of different kinds of fools. They're all created somewhat differently. The mocker is one of the types of fools. So generally speaking, there are the innocent or the simple referred to in the book of Proverbs. The innocent or the simple would be the young. They just don't know better. They're not, they're not intentionally ignoring wisdom or the benefits that are there. They're, they just don't know better. The fools, just generally referred to as the fools, are those who are old enough to know better, but they just don't heed or listen to wisdom. They don't seek wisdom out. But the mocker, the third, the third person, is the worst. They're old enough to know better. They should know better. They should know to seek wisdom, but they don't. And they're actually antagonistic to anyone who tries to correct them, who tries to give them instruction, who tries to help them to gain wisdom, which is why the author says, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. So if you've ever been in a disagreement with someone and suddenly it started turning to insults, you know you were in a disagreement with someone who's a mocker. If you've never had that happen, you might want to look in the mirror. You might be the person who tends to jump to that place of not only seeking wisdom, but degrading the other person that you're talking to. A mocker brings insults on anyone who tries to correct them. And then the author says there's a, there's a character component going on here as well. He says, whoever rebukes the wicked, which could, that word could also be translated as the evil or the ungodly, they incur abuse. So there's a character component that at the lowest level that someone who is both a mocker who doesn't want to be corrected and is antagonistic, but also lacks character, they could become physically violent. They may punch you in the nose if you correct them. They might throw a brick through your store window. They might burn a cross on your front yard. These are the people that become violent when they are corrected or when someone challenges their most deeply held beliefs. So the other observation, so, so as we keep going, the author continues and he casts, he introduced a contrast. He said, this is the way the fools and the wicked engage with correction or encountering someone who they, with whom they disagree. But he continues and he creates this contrast. In verse eight, he says, do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Continuing on with the thought he had before, rebuke the wise though, rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. So challenge a fool, someone who's a mocker, and they will insult you. If they lack character and they're a wicked person, they may punch you in the face. But if you correct a wise person, they will thank you for it. How will you know you're in a disagreement with a wise person? Because they're kind and generous and accepting to hear that you think something different 
and that you've helped them to see something in a new way, they'll actually be gracious about it. And, and again, he connects this to character as well. And he says, he says, teach the righteous, those who are right, those who are seeking to try and live in a way that's in accord with all that is true and right and beautiful in the world. And they will add to their learning. They will see correction. They will see disagreement as an opportunity to grow in learning and understanding and in wisdom. They will think again and reconsider their thoughts or actions or ideas. Even if they're deeply held beliefs, they'll reconsider them and they'll see that as an opportunity to learn and grow. This is the path to wisdom. It's the ability to be humble about even our deepest convictions and to hold them open-handedly. And when we encounter someone with whom we disagree, when we encounter someone who, who creates a counterpoint or an argument against what we believe, we should be grateful for that. We should be leaning in. We should be listening. We should be asking questions. We should be seeing that as an opportunity to learn and, and grow. Correct the wise, they become wiser still. Correct the righteous, and they will add to their learning. If that's the kind of person that we want to be, if we aspire to want to become wise, to, to grow in our wisdom, we have to see disagreement as a positive part of that process. This is the way that Proverbs points us. And it's the same, it's a similar thing in his book. Adam Grant says we should think like a scientist. And he says a scientist always accepts that there's things that they don't know. And they look for new information and they create hypotheses and they, they do tests. But I think that falls a little short of the richness and the depth of what Proverbs is telling us here. I think it's a good start. It's not wrong. But the pursuit of wisdom requires us to acknowledge how little that we actually know, to embrace our beliefs and our convictions, but to do so with humility, to recognize that there's, there's some things that we know but there's a lot that we don't know. And even worse than that, there's a lot that we don't know that we don't know. There's what we, what we think we know, and then there's what we don't know, and then there's what we don't know that we don't know, but even worse, it gets worse than that. There's a whole lot of stuff we think we know that we don't actually know. I still remember in seminary, one of my professors said, some percentage of what you believe about God is wrong. The problem is you don't know what percentage and you don't know what it is. So hold it loosely, hold it open-handedly. Does that mean we don't have, we just let go of deeply held beliefs or convictions? No, absolutely not. We, but we recognize we could be wrong. We're finite. We, we should be humble and recognize that we can't know everything. No one can know everything. So we hold our deepest convictions open-handed and we recognize that our convictions, our beliefs, aren't us. God doesn't love us or accept us because our beliefs are right. He doesn't love us or accept us because we get it all, all of our theology properly put together. It doesn't mean that, that those things don't matter, but we hold those things loosely to say, we're gonna seek understanding. We're gonna be people who wanna continue to seek wisdom and understanding, but we're gonna hold what we hold open-handed because we don't know what we think we know is wrong. We, we don't know what part of that might be wrong. So when we come into a disagreement, 
with someone or someone who believes differently than us. Rather than entrenching and preaching a sermon to them and telling them how wrong they are, jumping to the, all the logical flaws in their argument and being the prosecutor, or just simply blending in and kind of agreeing to get along and go along, we need to become learners. We need to see that the path to wisdom engages in those opportunities and sees them as an opportunity to learn and to grow. So with a couple minutes that we have left, I wanna suggest some practical ways that I think that we can do this. Here's a couple of practical observations. Number one, I think we need to seek out people with whom we disagree. Now maybe for you, you've already got those people in your life. I'm related to a lot of them. I mean, they're in my family. I mean, we have regular disagreements about politics and we even have, you know, I'm kind of the pastor, so we have conversations about faith a lot, and different ideas about God and church and all that. But I don't have to go looking for those people, but you might. There's a lot that's been made about how we've been sifted and sorted into neighborhoods and, and workplaces and friend groups that look and think a lot like us echo chambers that reflect back to us exactly what we want to see. Again, confirming all of our biases. And maybe you need to start thinking about your circle of friends and asking yourself, who are some people that don't think the way that I do? And how can I spend some more time with them? And when we're with them and we're, we find ourselves in, a, in one of those conversations, we've all been in them, where you suddenly realize this person doesn't see whatever we're talking about the same way I do. Rather than then girding up and becoming the prosecutor or the preacher, rather than, than attacking against, focus on the steel man in their argument, not the straw man. What do I mean by that? So the steel man in their argument is, what's the piece of their challenge or their dis difference or disagreement that actually kind of gets under your skin and is like, that's actually a good point. They, they actually are pointing out something that that is a valid argument. We often create straw men, which simply means we reduce someone else's argument to the simplest things that we can prove wrong and beat it up and make it look silly so that we, we can win the argument. But the truth is that most things, most important things, most things that people have deeply held convictions about, they're not that simple. They're not binary, they're complex. And so focusing on the strength in another person's argument is a way that we can begin to seek wisdom and to learn from what they have to tell us. This is a big one, number three. Ask questions, ask questions. If you find yourself in a disagreement with someone and you're talking or telling more than you're listening and asking questions, then you're not taking the posture of a learner. Ask questions, seek to understand, try to complexify the conversation. Ask questions that reveal this isn't an A or B, black or white, red or blue conversation, that it's way more complex than that. Ask questions about what they think about things that are outside of their tightly held argument. And try to broaden the perspective of the conversation. And then lastly, when you feel anxiety rising, when one of these conversations is taking place, whether it's in person or online, and you can feel your blood starting to beat, maybe your head starts to spin, your heart's pounding, your stomach feels a little queasy, the anxiety is rising, remember that Jesus died so that you don't have to get anxious about this, about knowing everything, about having the right answers, about being able to answer the questions of someone with whom you disagree. You, are not your ideas. You are not your deepest held convictions. 
Christ died for you and loves you. And you can stand firm and secure in knowing that even in a disagreement, you don't have to, you don't have to resort to, to insults or to beating the other person or trying to win. You can stand firmly in knowing that you are loved and accepted regardless of what your thoughts are. This is a more loving way to go into the world, to be able to encounter other people and recognize that some people confuse themselves and their ideas. They're all wrapped up in their identities, their pol political identities or their social identities or, or whatever else it is that they identify as themselves. But for us, as followers of Jesus, the most true thing about us is that we are loved and known by God and accepted because of what Christ did for us. So this week, your assignment, I hope you'll take this to heart and go have a conversation. Maybe you don't have to go looking for it, but engage with someone who thinks differently than you. And rather than avoiding it or, or getting amped up about it and trying to win the argument, see that the way of wisdom sees these as opportunities to learn or to grow. Correct a wise person, they will be wiser still. Correct the righteous and they will add to their learning. I pray that you will have the opportunity to grow in wisdom through your interactions with someone you disagree with this week. Let's pray as we close and we'll ask God to help us to be those kinds of people in all the places that he takes us this week. Let's pray. God, we recognize the truth of this and it, and it feels right um, to say that we should see the opportunities to be corrected and to learn something new as good and positive. But we also know that our emotions in these conversations can run high. We can feel threatened. We can feel diminished. Um, we can feel um, less than. And I just pray for everyone that in those moments that we would be able to stand firm on your love and, and to remember that, that we're all limited in our understanding. We're all limited in what we know and what we can comprehend and what we can take in. And that you don't love us because we get it all right, because we know all the answers or we know everything. You love us because that's who you are. You're our father who accepts us and loves us. And you want that love to overflow into the lives of others. May we be people, God, as we interact this week with friends and neighbors and coworkers and people with whom we disagree. May we be people who bring your love into those conversations and see those not as threats, not as a conversation to win or a battle to, to be overcome, but instead to see those as opportunities to learn and to grow and to show your love to people who are created in your image, even if we disagree with them. We pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.